You are listening to 90.1 FM, Back to the Boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124, and Blake and Ulig. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124, supports the Heartland Labor Forum. We've been wiring Kansas City since 1905, and if you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBEW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. And since 1972, Blake and Ulig has prided itself on providing comprehensive legal representation to labor organizations and their affiliated benefit funds on a local regional and national basis. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, trucking, um, <laughs> on tonight's show, do rural working class people vote against their economic interests because of cultural issues? Or could something else be pushing them to vote conservative? Shane Hamilton's book, Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy, has an answer, and he'll be on the show tonight. Then, do you know which two casinos in KC have unions to represent many of the workers? Do you know what union it is? We'll talk to Amber Gibson of Seattle. Here's a hint. Casinos are boats. In the news, it looks like Elon Musk will keep the National Labor Relations Board busy with unfair labor practices charges from his workers for an eternity. And this week's goofiest bill award. And now for the news. Now news from our side, February 16, 2022. Buffalo, New York had been a union town for decades, and as, last, as of last year, 20% of its workers are in unions. That's double the national average. But Buffalo has another distinction as a startup town for unions where companies meet their first unions. Think Starbucks, organized with Workers United, or Geico, 
trying to be the first union in a large insurance company, organizing independently. And now it's Tesla, where workers announced they are organizing also with Workers United, shunning the United Auto Workers. Buffalo Tesla plant makes electronic components for its electric vehicle superchargers and inverters for some of its battery products and has almost 2,000 workers and plans to hire more. The state of New York gave Tesla $950 million to build and equip the plant, expecting it to focus on solar energy. Matt Glenn of the Buffalo News reported on Tuesday that Nick Piazza, who has worked in data annotation at the Tesla plant since November 2021, said workers were handing out Valentine's Day-themed leaflets on Tuesday to kick off their campaign. He said workers are concerned about issues, including pay and job security. But they were also upset about the company's stance toward employees during the Christmas weekend blizzard. He said workers were told to use paid time off, sick time, or vacation time when they were unable to come into the facility and weren't permitted to work from home. Tesla owner Elon Musk is notoriously anti-union. The NLRB in 2018 told him to delete a tweet threatening to take away stock options for workers who tried to unionize, and Musk has been cited for firing a worker for organizing. So true to form, yesterday Tesla fired 30 employees just a day after the organizing drive hit the news. To add insult to injury, the organizing committee's Twitter account was suspended for no reason as well. Musk, it appears, will keep the NLRB busy. Deep in the new issue of Jacobin lies a story called Braveheart Lied to Us. It tells stories from each continent of so-called ancient traditions that aren't so ancient. Historian Eric Hobsbawm calls them invented traditions. We've selected one to share from Africa. Well, it's not really Africa. Rather, it's colonial Africa, where European corporate pillagers found wealth in extracting resources and then magnifying their value with an invented tradition. Though De Beers would like you to think diamond engagement rings are a tradition as old as love itself, the germ of the idea of gifting a ring worth nearly 20% of one's annual income was planted by De Beers itself in a highly effective mid-century marketing scheme. In a 1977 De Beers commercial, the narrator asks, how else could two months' salary live forever? It's a rhetorical question, of course, because according to De Beers, only a diamond is forever. In 1940, only about 10% of brides received diamond engagement rings. Today, the number is well above three quarters. For more invented traditions, including Thanksgiving, karate, and the kilt, go to jacobin.com. Every week during the legislative session, we will award either the Missouri or Kansas legislature with the goofiest bill of the week award. This is a tough decision since there are many contenders. Once again, Kansas wins over Missouri, but we want to mention Missouri House Bill 188, which isn't as goofy as it is cruel. It would require all immigrants who work in Missouri, whether authorized or not, to register and receive permission to work from the State Department of Labor. It will require all employers to use E-Verify to check the status of everyone they employ. We can already hear the howls from hotels, non-union contractors, and agribusiness screaming about future labor shortages if this punitive piece of legislation passes. However, we once again hand the Goofy Award to Kansas for its hearing yesterday in the Agricultural and National Resources Committee on House Bill 2397. This bill would bar any immigrant designated as being from a foreign adversary government 
at the discretion of the Kansas Secretary of Agriculture and the Kansas Attorney General from buying any real property in the state. So that would include everything from a farm to a shop to a factory to a house or even a garage. And it's up to notoriously anti-immigrant and racist Chris Kobach to decide to prosecute. The bill says it is the Secretary of Agriculture's sole discretion to adopt rules and regulations to add or remove a government or non-government person from the definition of foreign adversary. We ask, since when are the Secretary of Agriculture or the Attorney General experts in foreign policy? What does that have to do with an immigrant from, say, China or Venezuela buying a home? Talk about goofy, and we might add dangerous and probably racist. News from our side was brought to you tonight by Tom Gepkin, Bennett Nowatney, and I'm Judy Morgan. And it's time to pitch. And with I'm Judy, and with me uh, on, on the microphones is the other Judy <laughs> and Tom Gepkin. And it's Pledge Drive at KKFI. And we really need you to show support because I don't know how this happened, but we have three champion matches, which means three different people have put up $100 and they will give a hundred dollars to the heartland to support the heartland labor forum at kkfi if you match it and you can do that by calling 888-931-0901 or you can go online to kkfi.org and make a match now there's lots of reasons to give to kkfi and to support the heartland labor forum and i'm sure tom and judy have some reasons right i'm going to go to you tom first well, the, the reason to give right now is because it's a match, so you double your money. And there's lots of good entertainment on this radio station, all different kinds. There's something for you, no matter what uh, you like. But since we're here on the Heartland Labor Forum, the Heartland Labor Forum has, it's the voice of labor here in the Kansas City area. And there's always uh, some information that you probably didn't know about and a lot of things that uh, you can learn from this radio show. Like tonight, when we have our Labor Leader Series featuring Amber Gibson, we're looking forward to that. And you can make a pledge by calling 888-931-0901. And let me say, this match is being put up by Margot Patterson. <clears throat> Margot produces the show, Understanding Israel-Palestine, which is a unique show anywhere in the country giving both sides to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And it's just a marvelous show. So thank you, Margo. Uh, we want to make you pay. So if you want to help support KKFI, please call us at 888-931-0901 or go online to kkfi.org. And Judy, Morgan, what do you have to say? Well, I, I think we provide both great entertainment, like Tom said, and, and like music, and we also provide great public affairs programs. And when I was on my way to Wentzville to see my daughter and family right before the holidays, I tuned into KKFI for a while and listened to some holiday music that was very unique and very fun, and it really put me in the spirit to be happy for getting to see every my family. So it, we have great music, all kinds of different music. I think you can find anything you like. And then, of course, I'm very partial to the Heartland Labor Forum. This is my second stint of volunteering. I did it for a while and then became state rep and had to uh, not do it for a while because it was a conflict. And now I'm back on now that I'm not a state rep anymore. And I think, like Tom said, it's the voice of labor. And 
not very many outlets cover labor. So this is our chance for labor unions to really be able to get all of the things they care about out there. But we also care really cover just regular working people issues, which I think is really important. You don't hear much about those in mainstream media. So I think that's one of the reasons I really support KKFI and hope you will too. And I'm going to throw it over to our engineer, Scott Stanton, who not only has a super popular show on KKFI, but he's volunteering for us uh, tonight to engineer. And he's a member of IBW Local 124. What do you have to say, Scott? I am a proud member of IBW Local 24. 38 years I have in. And, uh, you know, this entire station is volunteer-based. And we're here. I do my show on Sundays. And, Judy, I am proud to be here operating the board for your show. I think it's a fantastic show. And uh, it really, this is the beauty of KKFI. It's, you know, there's so many different things you can do to, uh, from music to public affairs to this show about, you know, our our city and our our workers and how important they are to you. And uh, your pledge is important right now. The number to call is 88, you can double your money, 888-931-0901. We have a a Champions Challenge going on. It just takes, uh, you know, everybody to just, just to pitch in five bucks right now. If we just to double our money yeah. uh i love your show judy i yeah. really do and your volunteers are so amazing and uh it's it's a perfect time to show your love for this show i think i might call in here right now <laughs> and try and donate to this show because even though we volunteer our time we all still donate to the station and it's really important and there's a time to do it right now Okay, and now we're going to get to Judy's interview, which is real interesting. I already heard it, then, um, about trucking country. Hey, Morgan, President Emeritus of the AFT Local 691 and former Missouri State Rep, and I'll be your host for this segment of the show. The intro song you heard was Hillbilly Highway by Steve Earle. This evening, we're delighted to have as our guest Shane Shane Hamilton, who is an historian at the University of York in York, England. We'll be discussing the book he wrote entitled Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy. It's full of history, insight, and perspective on the trucking industry and our food economy and their impact on the American political landscape. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum, Shane, via Zoom from York, England. Oh, thanks so much for having me. First question's uh, a rather general one. From reading your book, I walked away with the impression that rural unregulated trucking, the kind that delivers consumer goods, including food, has contributed to low prices for these goods, but it's also led to low wages for workers. Is that a correct interpretation? Yeah, I think that's one of the broader points that I'm making is that over the course of the 20th century, corporations, particularly in agribusiness is what I focus on, were always looking for ways to drive down the cost of delivering their goods. And this is part of what I call the the farm problem. It's not just me calling it that. That's what it was called through much of the 20th century, is this very um, reasonable desire to have both farm incomes remain high and the cost of food remain low for consumers on the endpoint. How do you make that happen? You find something to squeeze. And overall, the book really looks at squeezing transportation and logistics to get the most efficient delivery of, of farm goods to consumers' plates, if you will. And and by doing that, it 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 drove down wages for certain workers. Is that correct? Yeah, in some ways, the core tension in the book is between 
organized, unionized, regulated long haul trucking uh, and unregulated, generally rural, uh, non unionized trucking. So, in kind of broad strokes, 1935, during the, the depths of the Great Depression, Congress uh, instituted the 1935 Motor Carrier Act. And the goal, it was actually written by trucking company, companies, basically. They wanted this legislation to rein in cutthroat competition. You had this situation where there are too many trucking companies, basically, often kind of one or two truck you know, firms competing against each other so much that they were driving down wages and working conditions in the industry. So a number of the trucking firms turned to Congress and said, please regulate us. We'd like to have less competition and more stability so that we can actually, you know, deliver the goods on time and with reasonable working conditions. So the intent was not to encourage unionization of the trucking industry, but the Teamsters strategically built on that legislation to very successfully organize much of the long haul industry. However, from the very beginning, certain Congress people included an exemption for what at the time they understood to be, you know, farmers taking like a can of milk to the creamery. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a whole sector of trucking that was unregulated from the beginning intentionally. It was assumed that this would be just truck truckers who also were farmers uh, getting their goods to the local market. That steadily expanded over the course of the 20th century such, such that you get this kind of shadow economy of unregulated independent owner-operator truckers using that agricultural exemption to effectively compete with organized teamsters, organized um, long-haul carriers. So let, let's talk about the milk industry because you, you spend quite a bit of time uh, in your book. And I actually remember the days when milk was delivered, um, you know, by via your your kind of neighborhood milkman and usually dressed in a rather nice, snappy white white uh, uniform. And at the time, you know, I was a kid and I, I didn't realize that that milkman was probably represented by the Teamsters because the Teamsters organized a lot of the milk industry. And uh, but you state that highway transportation actually made the Teamsters obsolete in the milk economy. So how and why did this happen? Well, yeah, milk is a good example. The Teamsters, you know, we often think of them as over the road truck drivers, but that really doesn't emerge until later in the 20th century. The Teamsters have their roots in delivering, you know, their urban delivery drivers for things like coal, milk, uh, you know, local deliveries. That was their their bread and butter for many, many years as craft unions in the, the early days of the AFL. Teamsters were very strong in the dairy industry, as you say, when when delivery of milk was much more localized within kind of city limits, you'd have, you know, one or two kind of big bottlers who kind of controlled the, the milk delivery within a particular city. And they would be organized by the Teamsters. And that's just how it worked. Um, beginning in the 1950s and onward, really, you see a pretty dramatic shift of power outwards outside the cities that the bottlers no longer are really controlling distribution. It's on a much more kind of regional and then ultimately national basis. So, I mean, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm from like the heart of dairy country and many, many generations of dairy farmers. And, you know, we progressively saw, you know, really kind of strange places being the source of milk, you know, like New Mexico uh, has these huge confinement operations, you know, where they're basically producing mozzarella for pizza. Um, but the, yeah, the, the whole milk industry was utterly transformed by the rise of long haul trucking, making it possible with refrigerated trucks to take milk over very long distances 
and increasingly by non-unionized lower paid workers, yes. Okay, and that's kind of when the then more the lower wages came in once the uh, non-union workers took over the uh, industry, basically, or, or a huge chunk of it. Right, that when you get the possibility of breaking up kind of urban industrial distribution centers and replacing them with the, the pattern that we now see, like, you know, Amazon, for instance, has its distribution centers by and large out in, in very rural or exurban areas. Uh, and they can rely on a lower wage workforce to deliver those goods rather than the, you know, the milkman, as you say, that was a a really good job, a clean, respectable job with steady hours, good pay, uh, replaced by something like long haul truck driving, which mm -hmm. is not, you know, steady hours. Um, okay. It's a very, very difficult, onerous job. And and you, you mentioned the agricultural exemption, and I kind of got a kick out of one part of your book where you uh, you referenced the debate that was going on in 1956 over whether frozen chicken was in fact a chicken. And, uh, and that debate involved the whole agricultural exemption, I believe, that was, as you said, was contained in the 1935 Motor Carrier Act. So that debate sounded kind of significant to me. So what, what was the significance of that debate? Yeah, again, at root, so in 1935, when Congress passed the motor carrier, the original Motor Carrier Act, uh, the agricultural exemption really was kind of an afterthought. Nobody was really intending this to be a, a major exception. Uh, they really did think, you know, a farmer taking a couple of head of cattle, you know, to, to a terminal stockyard that you shouldn't that they shouldn't have to apply for, you know, uh, ICC, um, you know, uh, license to be able to do that. Right. That, that makes a certain sense. It gets trickier when you have something like frozen food going from a farm, uh, which is a farm, certainly, but what if it's on an industrial scale, if it's a 200,000 acre, you know, vegetable processing plant like bird's eye, uh, you know, owned by bird's eye, um, when, you know, say frozen peas, which have only been processed to the extent that they're frozen, then are being hauled directly to a supermarket warehouse. Does that fall under the agricultural exemption or not? So that's what was at root with the frozen chicken question. Because if it's not, if it is exempt from under the 1935 Motor Carrier Act, then the, uh, you know, the truckers who haul it can be non-unionized. Right. You can rely on firms that are not, that don't need to have ICC regulation, which is much more expensive. So that was the significance then again, that it really impacted certain segments of our economy and workers that worked in those those jobs. It did. And more broadly, I would say that it, it opened up a, a window onto flexibility. One of the things I dwell on in the book is the flexibility of labor that's embedded in a long haul trucking system as opposed to a railroad based system, right? that there is this expectation of kind of sweated labor that workers will bend their schedules, their their willingness to work to the demands of the corporate employers, um, rather than to, you know, the, the ability that they actually have to get the goods there on time. Uh, you're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. And with us tonight is Shane Hamilton, who is the author of Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy. Um, I read a quote from your book, and I want to I want to quote it for our listeners. It said, "Popular peons to the truck driver as the last American cowboy in the 1970s, Howard defined rural manhood as a matter of fierce independence rather than social belonging, contributing to the increasingly divisive political culture of the post World War II U.S." Talk to us about what you meant by that quote, Shane. 
Yeah. So one of the things that drew me into this project originally, again, I'm from rural Wisconsin, and I was looking to write about the experience of being a rural person in the United States in the late 20th century. And of course, I knew farmers, and I come from a long line of farmers, but most of the people I knew growing up didn't really do any farming. And yet we lived out, you know, amongst farms. And what were the jobs that people did? Uh, truck driving was actually the, the most visible in many ways, you know, childcare, healthcare, you know, commuting long distances to the nearest town or whatever. But truck driving was this very uh, visible um, occupation. And it was also pretty clear to me that, that for men, especially, this is a way of kind of maintaining a sense of autonomy and independence that you might have had as a farmer. Right. Well, I mean, one could say that going from farming into trucking was a kind of natural transition that you have very mechanically skilled individuals who want a sense of autonomy and control over the nature of their work. Um, but one of the things I really emphasize in the book is that it wasn't really a choice to go from farming into truck driving. This is often as you've got consolidation of agriculture and you've got the rise of agribusiness in the mid 20th century, these men who want to feel proud of their work, want to feel proud of their rural identity identity, want to stay out in the country, don't have many other places to go. And long haul trucking turns out to be one of those key jobs that is increasingly linking those, those factory farms to the urban centers. So it's a way of maintaining a rural identity that is meaningful uh, at, at a time when there are few other choices. Um, near the end of your book, you acknowledge that women in color of people uh really were not mentioned very often in your book. And uh, I also noticed those omissions. Uh, and you explain why they were omitted. So why was that so that women and people of color really did not uh, have much play in your book? Well, I mean, don't blame it on my book, blame it on the industry. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, women were not expected to be drivers, uh, even of, of automobiles until, you know, well into the 20th century. Um, but certainly there's, I mean, there's a number of things. So in terms of the kind of rural uh, trucking industry, there really is this, this raw kind of masculine identity that even would put off a lot of, uh, you know, men who just who don't want to be in that, that kind of seemingly dangerous world. Um, and of course, men would uh, construct, a, you know, barriers to women getting into the industry would, you know, there's a couple of country songs that sort of make fun of it in the 1960s, you know, Little Pink Mac, for instance, you know, addresses this idea that, well, you know, I can drive a truck too, from a woman's standpoint. Um, but even in doing so kind of accepts this idea that it really is a man's world. So that begins to change in the 1970s and onward. And certainly you see increasingly these days, uh, you'll see more openness for sure. In terms of racism, I mean, this is rampant in the industry that uh, the Teamsters in particular, in, in certain cities especially, uh, would effect, effectively create um, racial hierarchies where African-American drivers were prohibited from being over the truck, over the road truck drivers effectively, uh, having access to the better jobs. It was is pretty strictly controlled within unions, which, uh, you know, locals were often quite racist, to be honest. And then in the rural context, um, you know, in many places, the there's just disproportionate employment. Uh, the, in a state like Georgia, for instance, where I taught for many years, uh, you know, 30% or more African-American, and yet it's all, an almost all-white 
long haul trucking workforce. It was just, it was very much embedded in the kind of um, labor practices of the industry for a long time. We interviewed uh, uh, Judy Ansel, our, one of our founders of the Heartland Labor Forum, interviewed a, a woman truck driver who started probably, I'm going to say, in the 60s or 70s. And it was a really interesting interview to hear what she had to go through. And she kind of forged her way because she wanted to make some money. And it was a teamster job. And she was able to make more money and raise her family that way. Oh, we're, I'm sorry, I'm running out of time. I have one last question for you. And it's actually kind of a big one because I think it's a, a tenet of your book. And um, you seem to target the central idea of Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas, which I think a lot of us have probably read. Uh, in Frank's book, he discussed how the growth of conservatism and rural working class voters in the last 30 years was primarily due to cultural issues that influenced them to vote against their economic interests. Uh, in your book, you, uh, you stated that decades before the religious right, conservative business leaders went, won over America's stomach not its heart. Do you think that Thomas Frank was wrong? And what are your thoughts on why people vote against their own financial interests? Yeah, that is a big question. Uh, so <laughs> Thomas Frank is right about many things. I just want to say that first of all. But yeah, centrally, I would disagree that it's, you know, working class voters themselves who are voting against their interests. What I argue in trucking country and my other work in, in, as well is that the structures in which the choices are made are defined primarily by corporate interests. So what I look at in trucking countries, by and large, agribusinesses, limiting the choices that rural people have to make. And so they become conservative in part because they're reacting to that limit of choices that they perceive so that they see, you know, the Democratic Party, by and large, not paying attention to their needs because the Democratic Party in farm states is paying attention to farmers needs not to workers who are not necessarily on farms anymore in the you know 70s and onwards or a democratic party that's increasingly you know driven by kind of urban consumer interests which also doesn't necessarily meet their needs so it's not necessarily that the republican party or other conservative parties are attending to their needs either but they're looking for choices and at least in the the study that i've done uh, their concerns are almost always defined by pocketbook issues, first and foremost. Culture comes afterwards, and it does matter. But the you know the cultural questions are driven by and large by the politicians, uh, you know, trying to insert this into politics, not by the working class voters themselves. Okay, well, thank you so much. I'm Judy Morgan, and thanks again to Shane Hamilton, author of Trucking country, the road to America's Walmart economy for joining us on the Heartland Labor Forum via Zoom from York, England. Thanks for having KKFI me. KKFI is Welcome. listening. Hello, I'm Kim Claus asking you for your support of your homegrown community radio station. You can hear all types of musical styles thanks to modern technology, but who listens to artists from your very own community and shares their talent streaming to the world? KKFI is listening to you, our community's local artists, because we welcome your local creations and KKFI is streaming them to the world thanks to our technology. Keep that stream going through pledging at 888-931-0901 or go online at kkfi.org. KKFI is listening for that local sound, so call 888-931-0901. Who knows, the next voice you hear may be your own if you call 888-931-0901. Okay, and thank you to Kim Claus, former volunteer um, on the Heartland Labor Forum. And we made our match, our first match. Yeah, thanks to Michael Savoir, 
Uh, thanks to Tom, our own Tom Gepkin. And thanks to Hester Dusick, who called in and challenged all AT&T workers to make a pledge to Heartland Labor Forum and to KKFI by calling 888-931-0901 or going online to kkfi.org. And, Tom, what do you think about all AT&T members Pledge. Well, as an AT&T employee, I accepted that challenge and, and uh, you did it. A donation, and I encourage uh, my brothers and sisters out there that are of the same employment to uh, to meet that challenge. And you can do that by dialing 888-931-0901. That's great. And we have uh, another champion challenge for $100 from Corliss and Joe Jacobs. Thank you, Corliss and Joe. We hope we make you pay. And we're already <laughs> on our way because I want to thank Lon Swearingen, uh, who called and, and, and made, made a contribution. So I think we might get there if you all out there help us. Call us at 888-931-0901. And now we're going to hear a little about power in a union. There is power in a factory, power in land, power in hands of a worker. But it all amounts to nothing. Together we don't stand There's power in a union Now the lessons of the past Were all learned with workers' blood The mistakes of the pulses We must pay for From the cities to the farmland To the trenches full of mud War has been the boss's way, sir, by union. And that was Power in a Union by Tom Jurevich. I'm Tom Gebkin, and I'm the president of CWA Local 6360 here in Kansas City. And I'll be co-hosting this segment with my friend Judy Morgan. She's a termed out state rep and president emeritus of AFT 691. If you visit the right casinos in Kansas City in the metro, the person serving you beverages, repairing the machines, and a whole host of other jobs, they're union members. These folks work, work long hours in a noisy work environment, and they strive to make sure your leisure time is the most fun it could be. These workers are members of the Seafarers Entertainment and Allied Trades Union, the C2. The Seafarers Entertainment and Allied Trade Union represents workers in service, hospitality, and the gaming industry. They're affiliated with the Seafarers International Union. They were chartered in 1995. C2 prides itself on providing the best possible representation for its members. And on this segment of the show, we'll feature, in, it's our labor leader series, and we welcome Amber Gibson. She is business representative for C2. This union has members locally at the Argosy in Riverside and the Hollywood Casino at the Kansas Speedway. Amber, Judy and I want to welcome you to the Heartland Labor Forum. Hi, Amber. Good to see you tonight again. Good to see everyone. Um, first question is um, a general one. It's, it's about um, C2. And uh, tell, us how, uh, tell us about the Seafarers Entertainment and Allied Trade Unions. What, what would you like our listeners to know about C2? Well, what I'd like people to understand is that 
fairness and consistency is everywhere. It's not just um, the firefighters or or the bricklayers or anything like that. It's for everyone. And so our folks that are in there, and, and they're the folks that are repairing the machines and filling the paper and serving the drinks and those types of things, they need to have have fair schedules they need things to be done by seniority they need to have representation if they're disciplined they need to have you know fair wages and and holiday pay and those are the things that we do and these folks they work a lot of long hours they they deal with the general public and so they need to have protection and that's the most important thing are the uh, dealers actually part of your union also so at Argosy, the dealers are organized, but they organized with UAW. Okay. So they are not um, at Argosy, with the exception of the dealers, the security officers, and the management staff. Everyone else is with C2. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how are you connected to the Seafarers Union, which that would be the national organization, right? Yeah. So Seafarers International are the men and women that sail around the world delivering cargo and goods um, everywhere. Um, they are on those ships that are, are bringing the cars, that are bringing uh, all the materials, the foods, and stuff like that. Uh, those are the men and women that are doing that. Well, that's our mother union. And because the casino started on the on the rivers, they were river boats that cruised, that's oh. how we kind of got into that. Um, when Argosy opened here in Kansas City, originally it cruised. And so it was organized. Now, that was before I was part of all this. Okay. Um, but I came in shortly, uh, about four years after. So so you organized in 95, or mm-hmm. you were chartered in 95? I chartered in 95. And that was the main reason, was because you were basically uh, a boat on the river. Yes. And that's why they decided to go with the seafarers. Okay, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah, and I was uh, on those actual riverboat cruises, and it was fun. Right. Oh. When it went out, and then... What was two hour cruise? Two hours. And they came back. Mm-hmm. Well, how big is your union both here locally? How many members do you have? And then how big is it at the national level? So locally, um, we have probably it varies, and of course, COVID has affected everything. We we don't have all of the amenities returned completely. So between Argosy and Hollywood, we have between four hundred to six hundred and fifty members locally. Um, we have mm, about 9,000 mm. nationally for C2. Now, our mother union, of course, is um, a lot larger. There are about 35,000 members worldwide. So how did COVID impact uh, you all in your profession and in your union? So it, it was a huge hit there for a while. Both Argosy and Hollywood were shut down. And so we had, uh, we went through the layoff and the recall process. Again, not all of the amenities reopened. Um, it was very limited at first. We're, um, both of those facilities are gaming, uh, are, are governed by gaming. So they have mm-hmm. um, KRGC, which is on the Kansas side, and MGC on the Missouri side. So they have a lot of rules and regulations. So when they did the layoff uh, of the employees, did they do it according to your union contract? Did you have a contract in place? We had a contract in place. And because it was a complete shutdown, everything, the layoff was done as a mass layoff. The recall was done 
per our contract. Oh, that's good. That's Absolutely. good to hear. And if you hadn't had that contract, it might not have gone that way. Completely. <laughs> that would be my guess. Completely. There were, I, I had more than one leader ask me, well, you know, this person's not as good as this person. I'm sorry, it's seniority based. You know, did everybody pretty much eventually get called back? Most did. Some moved on to other yeah. ventures and stuff like that. Uh, you're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum tonight, and with us is Amber Gibson, who is with the C2 Union. Uh, Amber, how did you decide to become active in your union? That's always interesting to me. And then you went on to actually become the, the, the main person at your union in terms of leadership, so the business rep. So how'd you, how did you do all that? Well, it, what's funny is the previous rep, um, Karen Horton Jeanette, uh, whenever I came in as a member, she got me involved and I started going to the meetings and I started asking questions and I became a delegate and I went to convention and I learned so much about unions and I, I knew some. I grew up with a grandfather that was with Yellow Freight and, and drove for years. So I had union background, mm -hmm. but I learned so much more then and I think it just the passion for helping someone, mm -hmm. for being able to help protect their job or get them more money or help them find an avenue um, because they're going to be off for six weeks or, or those types of things. And, and how do they do those things? And I think that was a passion that was kind of instilled. And it was this little fire that ignited. <laughs> and when I got a chance, it just blew up. And you came up through the ranks, right? Because you actually worked at the Argosy. Yes. And tell, tell everybody what you did at the Argosy. So I started off in the slot department. I went in. I didn't know anything really about casinos and stuff. And I started off in the slot department. And I was there for about four months. And I, I was younger and, and had a lot more energy. And I, <laughs> I went over to being a, a, a beverage server. And so I was a, what people refer to as a cocktail waitress. Um, and I, I stayed with Argosy for just shy of 10 years. And I mean, like, too much shy of 10 years. Um, and then I had the opportunity to become the um, business representative. I started off as the assistant business rep, but then it moved up to okay. business rep, and um, it's just kind of snowballed from there. And is that an elected position, the business rep, or is it appointed? I'm appointed. Okay, mm -hmm. and is that by somebody higher up in the union? Or? Yes, yes, it's by our powers that be. Okay. Yep. <laughs> do you have a stewards on the at the location, or do you handle all of that? So we have delegates. That's what I was when I first came in. Um, we have delegates that work for the company and help me out. They're my eyes and ears because, obviously, the casinos run 24-7, 365, I'm one person with an assistant, but you know, there's a lot of different areas and, and with having two facilities and other things, there's no way I could be there at all times. Right. Um, so they're my eyes and my ears and, and sometimes my mouthpiece. They do a great job. Uh, we are speaking with Amber Gibson. She is the business rep for the C2, which is the Seafarers Entertainment and Allied Trades Union, and it's part of our Labor Leaders Series. One of the things we like to ask uh, our guests when they come on this series is, where do you see your local from where it is now, and where do you, where would you like to see it ten years from now, as as it moves along? So we always like to continue to grow, because 
we have added Hollywood. Uh, we, you know, when it first started, we only had Argosy. We have added Hollywood. We've organized in other areas and, and those things. But I think it's important to continue to grow because the more we have involved, the stronger we are. As we all lock arms, um, we become a chain, and that chain gets stronger with every arm that's linked. And that's where I think it's important that not only just um, with C2, but also with all unions, and hence the reason we've become involved with AFL-CIO and stuff is because together we're all stronger. So um, you mentioned the two casinos that you've organized. How many other casinos are there, and, and why are they not organized, do you think? So locally there is, um, well, technically four, if you count 7th Street. Um, but there are three main other casinos locally. Um, a lot of those are very anti-union. Okay. Um, I do know that there have been attempts to organize some of them, and it has been met with great opposition. It has been a while, as far to the, to the best of my knowledge, since an attempt has been made. But there are so many people that they don't understand what a union is. They don't understand what they do for them. All they can think of is, oh, I got to pay union dues. Mm -hmm. Well, your union dues are minimal compared to what the rewards are. Um, I just had an orientation of a couple of people today at Argosy, and our dues are eleven fifty four every two weeks. I know that that's a very inexpensive mm -hmm. dues amount. And when I talk to them about how um, the benefits they get with like PTO and the fact that they can cash out some PTO, the fact that they get um, holidays that they get paid time and a half for. I explained how overtime, you know, paid at 40 hours, if you work more than 40 hours a week, it's it's overtime, which is paid at time and a half. And so many people think that that's a law, and it's not. Right. It's not a law. Mm -hmm. That's a right that's protected by a union contract. And the right to representation. I can't tell you how many people are so thankful that they had someone go in on their side, whether win or lose or draw on it. They, I've had people come up and say, thank you, I just wanted to be able to get my side of the story mm -hmm. out. I just wanted someone to listen to me. And that's important, having that voice for those people. I represent people that don't, maybe English isn't their first language or even their second language. Maybe they are of um, a culture where women don't have a good don't have a lot of rights um, maybe they're of color and they feel like they don't have some of the same opportunities and stuff like that it doesn't matter what color or age or sexual orientation you mm -hmm. are what matters is that you're my member that I represent mm -hmm. you're my brother you're my sister a union contract is the great equalizer mm -hmm. no absolutely and one of the things as I was listening to you talk is uh, when you have a union contract, you move from an at-will employee into a just cause, and uh, that's very important. Mm -hmm. So, Amber, um, most unions have an executive board that works with their uh, membership. Mm -hmm. So um, what do you think is the importance of the executive board, and what's the importance of having a good one? Well, I think that a good executive board, just like with anything, if you don't have that good foundation, you can't build a – you can't build a stable house if your foundation is 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 crooked if it's if it's not solid if it's not set then you 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 fall you fail and if you have that you're good uh, just we have about three minutes left 
but w the next uh, thing I'd like you to talk about is as you sit down and have union meetings with your members and stuff, what, what's important to them? What, what do they want from their union? So, of course, everybody always wants more money, and especially <laughs> yeah, in this true. economy. Oh, yeah. and, and I think that money benefits is a big thing. You know, making sure that they have access to affordable health care, um, having, again, paid holidays, PTO. People don't understand how hard it is for someone to take time off if they don't get paid for it. You know, and then having that right to representation. If I get in trouble, it's nice to know I've got somebody mm -hmm. there to go in with me. And and I think that those things are very, very important. And health insurance. Health insurance is huge, huge. I know my, my late husband used to tell me it was a good thing I was a member of a union because I opened my mouth so much that I needed somebody to be there for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so, which is true. If you Sometimes if you stand up, you kind of get a target on your back. But if mm -hmm. you got the union behind you, they'll be standing behind you. Absolutely. Or standing with you. Standing with you. That's mm -hmm. right. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, we have just a couple minutes left. Uh, you've already kind of talked about the diversity that you have in representation and the diversity of the people who work at the casino. Would you talk about that a little more? So again, I have I have a multitude of different nationalities that are represented. And it doesn't matter if you're white, black, yellow, green, purple. It doesn't matter your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter if you're short, tall, heavy. It, it doesn't matter. You're all equal. Where the differences become are what classification are you in, where your seniority is. So I, I always tell everybody, you've put your dues in, you've been here 20 years, you have more seniority, that's where the difference is. Besides that, you're all equal. And that's, that's so important to have because favoritism is easy because people feel comfortable or they feel like they can control and it's easy to fall into that favoritism with rules with a labor contract that keeps it equal it keeps that away and it it just it it keeps it unbiased and that's Protections. very important uh, I'm Judy Morgan, and with Tom Gepkin, my co-host for tonight, I want to thank you, Amber Gibson, for being with us tonight, um, your business rep of the Seafarers um, um, Entertainment and Allied Trade Union, and we're really happy you're with us tonight. Thank you for being part of our Labor Leader Series. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Amber. Great, great interview, you guys. Uh, we did, I, I just want to say. Did really good. We did make the second match. Uh, thanks to Dave Miller for calling in. Judy, who, who else did we hear from? Um, that was that was it for this part. But we made our second match. Yeah. Thanks to Corliss and Joe. We you're gonna pay, and now we're on to a third match, and it's me. It's you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I am gonna give a hundred dollars if anybody wants to match it we actually are part way there already so it isn't too much to get over the hump to make that third match and even more so you can do that by calling 888-931-0901 um and yeah thanks again to dave miller he's a fan of yours well, scotty <laughs> he does donate to River Trade Radio, and he listens to KKFI all the time, apparently. Dave, thank you so much. 
Uh, that was a fantastic interview, you guys. And you're only going to hear that kind of stuff on Heartland Labor Forum, man. I mean, that that's beautiful, beautiful interview, you. you guys. Both of you, Judy, Tom, it was beautiful, man. Yeah, really. Thanks. Uh, it was great. Th- thank, thanks a lot, Amber. And, and I want to credit uh, my co-host, Tom Gepkin, because he's the one who came up with the idea of the Labor Leader Series probably over a year ago now, I bet. Yeah. And yeah. we've interviewed a lot of the labor leaders in Kansas City. So I'm, I'm, I want to congratulate him for coming up with that idea. Need more women. I was glad to see Amber on because we don't have enough women. Yeah, we were glad to see Amber on, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was so good. That's anyway, such a great interview. So, so support us. Support the idea of the Heartland Labor Forum and, and the idea that we do provide working-class information that the rest of the media ignores. That's right. You know, where are you going to hear about, you know, what it's like to work at the Argosy? Mm-hmm. You know, where are you going to hear about the kind of equal treatment that unions can provide? Yeah. And where are you going to hear about the news of Elon Musk? <laughs> right here on KKFI, and you can you can double you can make Judy pay right now. Judy's yeah, got her own money up on the show right now. You can call eight 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 nine three one zero nine zero one, or call or dial in on your computer to kkfi.org. Right. So um, I don't know if any other AT and T employees have called in though. Um, Dave Miller isn't one of those, right? He's a self-made man. He's a self-made, self-made man. man. Well, we invite all self-made men and women <laughs> to support KKFI um, and call us at uh, 888-931-0901. You know, I've been hosting this show. Well, I've been on this show since 1989, wow. April Fool's Day, um, when a group of us, um, an auto worker, an IBEW member, a millwright, um, a AFSCME member. I'm trying to remember all the original people. Steelworker. All, we all got together and we agonized over what are we going to call this show, you know? And um, we decided on Heartland Labor Forum because we couldn't think of anything more clever. And so it is. And um, I'm the only one left of that original group. <laughs> some are dead. And we're some, glad you're some here. Some went on to other things. Oh, Bill Claus was another one. Um, AFGE and uh, we've taken on so many we've had so many volunteers come through learn how to do radio um, and cover labor and they've come and they've gone some have stayed for a long time you know like uh, I don't know how long have you been here Tom uh, your 30th anniversary it was when I first came in so how long is that so that's three, three years okay three okay. Years. five years in, in this 35th year and for uh, for oh, Heartland for, oh, Labor Forum, it's, okay. it's actually okay. Going on thirty-four. Four going on thirty-four. Okay. Yeah, so f- almost four years. Four years. Yeah, and Judy, you, your first stint was I think I did about two years between the time I was union president and the time I got elected to be state rep. And when was that? Um, it was in uh, I retired from the union in two thousand nine, and I was elected. Um, served my first term in two thousand twelve. Jesus, you spent a lifetime in the legislature. <laughs> yeah, nine years. Nine, yeah. And then as soon as uh, as soon as I was terming out, uh, Judy Ansel appeared at my doorstep and said, "Come back." <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting, <laughs> and I, I said yes because yeah. I have to say that I, I Judy's done a fabulous job. She really has keeping all this together, and we're kind of sometimes a motley group of volunteers. I think. And yeah, but you know the show. <laughs> all, I don't, I've never had anybody not show up for a show. 
Oh my gosh, that's never. amazing! In thirty, almost thirty-four years, people are—you know—people know the show must go on, and they better be there if they said they were going to be there. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That's a yeah. testament for sure. It's a, it's a testament to yeah. something. I yeah. think you know the, well, the importance people give to actually having a voice on the radio yeah. because it's a gift to be able to have a show this long on a radio station. Mm-hmm. You know? Even and during COVID, even, uh, the radio oh, station adapted oh, to yeah. the changes that need that were yeah. necessary at that time. Because you went all to Zoom for quite mm-hmm. a while, we right? Did, yeah, we did Zoom, and we still do Zoom. Mm-hmm. But also, I want to thank all the unions that underwrite. Right now, we're having an underwriting campaign, and um, we're, we're just in the midst of it. And there's a number of unions that I want to uh, I want to thank when I get a chance. But right now, we want you to pledge, not your union. We want you individually to pledge, whether you're a union member or not. If you're a working person or you ever worked in your life, <laughs> you <laughs> you know that workers need rights. And you know that we need to be informed about that. And so call us at 888-931-0901 and make a pledge to the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI. Judy, do you have a short calendar to take I us out with? I do have a short calendar. Where is it? Okay, you can find our calendar on our Facebook page, so don't write down any of these links. Just go to the Facebook page and find it. So the Wyandotte County Third Saturday Breakfast is this Saturday, February 18th, 8.15 for breakfast, 9.15 for speakers at Las Islas Maria at 4929 State Avenue in KCK. I don't know who the speakers are. The UU Forum this Sunday is a tale of two police departments with Laura McDonald from Moore Squared, 9.30 a.m. at the University Universal, Unitarian Universalist Church, 4501 Walnut in Conover Hall, or online. If you go to allsoulskc.org, you can get a link. <clears throat> Labor Notes, online training, turning an issue into a campaign. If you're a union steward and you want to turn the issue that your members are really angry about and turn it into a campaign to really pressure management. This is the training for you. February 23rd, 12 to 2 p.m. Central Time. Online, register by emailing joe at labornotes.org and ask for the registration link. Winterfest from Clay County Democrats, Saturday, February 25th, 11 a.m., Harris Hotel, North Kansas City. Register at claycountydems.org. And finally, Stand Up KC Allies Meeting, Wednesday, March 1st, 2 p.m., St. Mark's Hope and Peace Church, 3800 Troost. There are a bunch of organizer jobs that are open, but I don't have time to read them. So simply go to our Facebook page, Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page, and find the calendar. Um, uh, that's it for tonight's show, and I'm trying to find what's next week. It's Beyond Team Management and Teamsters Delivering a New UBS Contract. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer and pitcher, Scott Stanton. Stay tuned for the Thursday night special which is Stand Up, produced by the Racial Justice Initiative. And that's it.
listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still got our because we are the working class and that's the place to be. No one can deny that you could 